Hi, Joe. Ah, there we go. Excellent. Now I can hear you. Okay, starting the show in five, four, three, two, one. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening. The time is eight o'clock. The date is the 9th of March and we are live on Teachers Talk Radio. On tonight's show, I have the honour of chatting to Sir David Carter. We will be having a wide-ranging discussion and we'll be talking about school leadership and much more. Do join us by texting or calling in. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Noreen Khalid and very warm welcome to you all. On today's show, uh, we are going to have Sir David Carter, who's um, in the studio and is about to join us. Um, it's great to have all of you uh, joining uh, joining us. Uh, um, hi, hi David. David. Good evening. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Look forward to the session. Lovely. Thank you. Um, so listeners, we've got Sir David Carter in, in our show. Um, if you'd like to join uh us uh, in our discussion then please do text us or tweet us or uh, and join us on social media and we'll take your questions as we go along um, if you would like to know more about teachers talk radio or if you'd like to become a host with a show of your own then please visit our website on www.ttradio.org which has details about how to get in touch with us and the team will be delighted to hear from you and you may become one of our latest hosts with a show of your own. So I'm really excited about tonight's show because I have the honor of chatting to Sir David Carter tonight. Um, Sir David Carter was the National Schools Commissioner from February 6, 2016 to August 2018. And before that, he was the first Regional Schools Commissioner for the Southwest. Uh, Sir David is a music, music graduate and he has taught music in comprehensive schools across the country. He has also led schools as a head, as a principal and as a CEO. Sir David was one of the first national leaders of education. Um, he received a knighthood for services to education in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2013. Welcome to this show, David. I'm really grateful uh, to you for joining me tonight. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Um, I've always enjoyed reading and listening to what you have to say about um, education. And, um, and let me tell you that uh, governors love you too, especially because you've said that we are the unsung heroes. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to win friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Joseph, who's, who's um, producing the show in the, in the background, he's, um, he's um, just messaged and he says, yes, a music, a, a fellow musician. Yeah, that's good. I'm in good company. It's nice to know that. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, so let's start uh, the show now. Um, and starting at the beginning, how and why did you get into teaching? 
gosh, it seems an awfully long time ago now. Um, I started teaching in September 1983, so I'm coming up towards 40 years in the education profession, um, and it's just been such a privilege to have spent my career working with teachers and children in schools. Um, I, I, I wasn't one of those people who wanted to be a teacher from a very early age. Um, I, I didn't really think about it until I was at university. Um, and I went to Royal Holloway College in the University of London and did my music degree there. Um, and when I was there, one of the options that I took was an option in music education. Um, and and what that was basically was my first introduction, I suppose, to teacher training and what it might be like to be a, a secondary music teacher. And I absolutely loved it. And then in my final year at Royal Holloway, I applied to the Institute of Education in London to do my, my music P, PGC. Um, uh, and I did that. I had uh, my, my, my teacher placements in London schools. And I just knew from the very first day I went into my teaching practice schools that it was, the right, it was where I felt I belonged and what I wanted to do. Uh, and I've never really wanted to do anything else. I mean, my, my, my passions in life are, have been music and sport. Um, and the fact that somebody was prepared to pay me to teach music <laughs> was just uh, amazing. So uh, that, that was how it started. And, and it hasn't really ended because although I'm not working full time anymore, I'm still helping leaders and schools and uh, multi-academy trusts 40 years later. So it's just been such a privilege to be a part of that, of that experience. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to hear that. Um, and, and, you, you know, um, hearing to you, listening to you or attending one of your presentation, the passion you have for education always does shine through. You, you can't tell that how passionate you are about, um, about leadership, about education, about providing uh, good chances for everybody. Um, so oh, we've got a message again from uh, Joseph. He says, um, it's an underappreciated subject like music, which has such a big influence. Well, I, I, I feel more strongly than ever these days that the position of the arts in schools is sadly being eroded. Mm. But, I, but I think if you, if you reflect upon the experiences that children have had in the last few years um, and, and the, how many of them have found it really tough and, and have really struggled, I think, to get back into school, unless we have a really vibrant arts curriculum that enables young people to make sense of the world, to have an opportunity to express how they feel, mm. Um, whether that's about making music or, or, or acting or painting or dancing, then I, I think we do them a disservice. And so um, all, almost my career has gone full circle. I've, I've always been an advocate of the arts, but I, I feel part, partly because pe people ask me to speak of things and, and, and want to know what I think. I take every opportunity I can to really, really try hard to, to think about the position of the arts and, and, and how powerful that is as an experience for young people. Oh, absolutely. It, it you know, you, we can't stress enough the importance of arts in um, in our lives and in the lives of our children and young people. Um, so it's good that we've got a really strong advocate in you. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I believe you became a head teacher in '97. Um, right. Has the role changed since then, and would you want to do it now? Oh wow! Has it changed? Well, yes, yes, it has changed. Um, I, I mean, I think it would have evolved anyway, even if the system hadn't changed. But but I I, I think that one of the huge privileges I've had, certainly since '97, which is gosh, what's that? Twenty five, twenty five years now, isn't it? I suppose is to see how many different types of leadership roles have emerged in that time. I mean, I, I was I was incredibly lucky to get my first headship. Uh, I was quite young when I got it, and it was just a question of being in the right place at the right time. Um, uh, I, I had very little experience of senior leadership when I got that role, um, but but you know having 
uh, fellow heads around me that 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 acted as as gave me advice, gave me guidance, and mentored me. Um, and still teaching, that was very important to keep myself grounded in the classroom while I was ahead. Um, and and within about six weeks of me being an acting head before I got the job permanently, we were inspected. Um, and I and I think I really worked hard to 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 not not protect the staff, but to let them know I had their back and that they was they shouldn't be worried about it. And I suddenly realised that if you could engage people and work with people, then then actually you had a chance. And because I knew about I knew what I wanted to do with the school, I, I knew what my beliefs were about curriculum. I I knew how important teaching was and how I could help people become better teachers. But whether you can actually lead a group of disparate people together and have them all pointing in the same direction. Um, that was for me very unproven, and, and and that was that was the bit that I really enjoyed, and and of course as I, I had the the privilege to go on to be as you said in the introduction an executive head, then ran a multi academy trust, and then continued um, to be to see I think uh, education through the lens of teaching. When I was national schools commissioner, talked a lot about uh, teaching being the only intervention that works, mm-hmm. um, and and we have to really think about how we help people become great teachers. Uh, and support them. Um, that I, I think my roots in the classroom and the things that I believed in 1997 have stayed with me ever since then. Hopefully. Um, so I, I want to start talking a bit about uh, leadership now. Um, sure. What makes a good and effective school leader, in your opinion? Well, I, I think there are a number of different different ways you can look at that at, at, at it. And I think one the first thing I'd like to say, I suppose, is I don't think there is a blueprint for what a leader should should be like. I, I think I think the uh, the world of leadership in education is very broad, and it should and rightly should attract people from very diverse backgrounds with diverse experiences, because ultimately the the goal of leadership can only really be the success can only really be measured by the impact you have on the lives of young people. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think there's a, there's one route into that. But but I think leadership probably has at its heart three things. One is, um, I think you have had to have to have a sense of compassion and empathy, so that uh, you you understand that that uh, the, that young people make mistakes, um, yeah. and and that you need you need to help them, um, and that that adults when they come to school to teach or to be support teachers or or whatever role they have in the school setting. They're also mums and dads, they're brothers and sisters, they're sons and daughters, and sometimes life gets in the way. Yeah. Um, and, and as a leader, you have to realise that people aren't robotic and, and that sometimes there are challenges outside school that impact upon their performance in school. So for me, it was about that. I think the second element, it was about building a team, about about making people believe in in one, one goal, not making our vision so complicated people couldn't understand it, but to talk about the direction we were going to move in. And then I think the third bit of it is real clarity around the communication about, so what is it that we're trying to do? How do I give people feedback? How, how do I judge what good looks like? Um, and, and I think if you take those, those things around compassion, around uh, communication, um, around that whole collaborative uh, networking, which I believe so strongly in, um, and, the, and the power of the team always being more than the power of the individual, then I think if you believe in those things and you can live, live those values uh, each day, I think you've got a really good chance of being successful. That, that's really interesting. It's um, the, the point you've made about um, realising that you know, people make mistakes. Um, it's, it's a really important one, especially for leaders. Um, not only children make mistakes, the team, uh, the team, you know, the team you lead may make mistakes and it's how you react to those mistakes, which perhaps differentiates between a really good leader and one not so great. 
Well, I think I think the 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 risk you take as a leader is if you don't enable people to try things out and get things wrong, mm-hmm. then you lose the innovation that comes with that. Yes. So, of course, risk taking has got to be managed, and you don't want you don't want risk taking with children's safety. Yes. But actually, you know, I would I would always want somebody to be encouraged to come forward and say, look, we'd like to try something different out, whether it's a curriculum um, design thing or whether it's an assessment tool or. Uh, it's a new enrichment experience, I, you know, and I, I would always want to give people the chance to to try those things out because how else do you learn about uh, about leadership? How else do you learn about change management unless you're tasked with with leading something? And uh, and I think that's a very important element of it. And my job, I think, as a head, was to mitigate those risks, maybe create the 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 parameters in which that innovation could take place, so that people could do it safely and well, and then look at, look look at how we move on to the next stage once they've been successful. Yeah, Joseph just uh, texted that everyone makes mistakes. Uh, there is no such thing as a perfect teacher. No, nope, that right, and and there's no such thing as the perfect head teacher either. Yeah, uh, talking about uh, head teachers um, and leaders, how do we identify, grow, and develop teachers uh, who will make good leaders? No, that's a that's a really good question. Um, and I, I suppose there's two things I'd say before I think about. The, the, the proper answer to your question. One is, um, I'm, I'm not convinced that every teacher wants to become a leader, yeah. and why? And, and, and why should they? Yes. So I'm very, I'm very clear about that. But I also think that every teacher has the capacity to be a leader because, for me, if I think back to 1983 when I started teaching, there were certainly elements of my teaching practice um, where I was leading learning in my classroom, and some of the decisions, looking back, were leadership decisions actually about how I wanted my classroom values and the culture to be created, how how I wanted to to talk to children about what we were trying to do in my subject and and, and what they and, and how they could engage in that. So I think I think there is an inherent language of leadership which happens in classrooms. Um, but in terms of the, the answer to your question about how do we how do we develop those those teachers into leaders, then I think role modelling is really important. Um, I, I am an advocate of, of leadership training and leadership courses. I, I, I think there are some excellent ones that I've seen over the thirty years I've been I've been uh, in, in, involved in senior leadership. But I, I also think that that there is a real power in actually simplifying what leadership is and the walking the talk, as some people might call it, where where people are thinking very clearly about. Um, working with somebody who is leading and seeing how they how they do that and you know, walking a mile in their shoes that 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 kind of principle, I think is really important. I also think the role of mentoring and coaching is pretty vital as well because I think whilst I think you can do generic leadership training, I think actually the mentoring coaching conversation enables you to pitch that that mm-hmm. development at the at the level of the individual and what they specifically need. Um, and I and I think if I look back, that you know one, one of the things that I'm probably most proud of. Of the things I've I've done in, in my career is there's now over 30 people who I've worked with who are heads of schools across the country. Um, so the good news is at least I didn't put them off. <laughs> but, but I also hope that I also helped them a little bit to to develop. And and, and that's a hell of a legacy, isn't it? That's something it to be is. very proud of. It is. Um, that you preempted one of my questions. That was going to be one of my questions towards the end of the show. That what is the one thing which you are really proud of? And, well, uh, now you warn me. I'll think of a second one before we get back. <laughs> good, okay. Um, Right. Um, you have vast experience of school leadership, obviously. Um, what uh, and you've talked about that there are re- some really good leadership programs out there. Um, what what makes a good leadership program? Um, I, 
Well, I think there are there are different components, right? So, so again, I think I'd approach it from two angles. Um, one would be there's 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 a there's a quality element to the to the content. Um, I, I I get very nervous when people turn leadership training into something very formulaic, mm. um, and, and and I call it the pot noodle approach. You know, you 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 take a mixture, put some hot water on it, and and there you go. That that's your leadership. Um, uh, where we're working i don't i don't believe it's as simple as that if it were that simple then we'd probably do more of it but it's not leadership is much more complicated than that so i think there's something about the content and i think the the content has to be about lighting the spark it has to be about encouraging people to do two things first of all to investigate further but also then apply what they've learned to their own context um i think i think that's really important i think the second element of it is is the notion that the best leadership programs that I've seen and some of the ones I've had, I've been lucky enough to work on, particularly at the Ambition Institute in the last couple of years, have been programs where I we, we've been thinking about not just the development of the leader in the room, but how that leader then develops other people. Um, going back to my point about role modelling, I suppose. So if, if you develop successful leaders as aspiring heads or as aspiring multi-academy trust leaders or CEOs, then hopefully the, the quality of their leadership rubs off on other people. So I'm always very conscious when I'm planning uh, content for leadership training that I'm delivering to be thinking about how, how it leads to more people getting the benefits of that experience other than just the person in front of me. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, um... Talking about leadership again, um, you've led schools in in different capacities. You've been a head, um, a principal, a CEO. Um, is there a difference in these roles? And if yes, how are they different? Yes, they they are different. Um, and and I think if I look back, the the jump that I found the hardest and the one that I probably had to think the most was that was the jump from being the head of a single school to being an executive head over two. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I actually think the, the jump from that executive head role to being the CEO of a trust, I think was easier in some respects. And the reason why I think the first bit of it was hard was because all of my experience was so rooted in, in single school leadership and, and running my school and, 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 and the schools where, where I was the head of a single school, I think I tried to be the same leader in two schools. Uh, and I think that's difficult because in one of the schools where I was an executive head, there already was another head, and I was right. my job was to support that person. Yes. And we had to work we had to work through that quite hard um, to 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 really try to understand what our what, where the similarities and where the differences were in our role. So I'll give you an example. You know, one of the things I I, I used to really enjoy doing, and, and I think I was good at, was doing lesson observations, giving teachers feedback. And I remember very early on in the relationship as an executive head going into the school that I was I was now the executive head over as well as my own school um, and watching a lesson and giving feedback uh, and the, the recognition that what I was doing was I was I was actually creating confusion because I wasn't the head of the school. Mm -hmm. And so what I started to think about was that when I wanted to see people teach, I needed to take members of the school leadership team with me. Yeah. And my my observation was less about the lesson but about how they gave feedback to the teacher so that I had, I had an opportunity to inform the way teachers were being fed back to and developed. And once, I, once I'd realised that, it got a lot easier for me. And then when the scale got bigger and I got involved in more schools uh, in, in Bristol when we, when we set up the, the Cabot Learning Federation, um, it, it, was a, it was a more natural jump, I think, to, 
to the idea about what was my purpose as a CEO in watching people teach? Why would I be doing that? And on some occasions, I realized I didn't need to do that anymore because there were people probably more skilled and more close to the classroom than I was then doing it. But when I did look at it, I tended to look at, look at or focus my attention on the senior leaders. Because obviously, if you want senior leaders to really model great teaching and learning, they need still to be doing at least competent practice themselves in the classroom. Yeah. And, and you weren't going to get a middle leader necessarily watching a deputy head teach in the same way that I might. So I tended to focus my lesson observations on how other senior leaders were, were doing that. So I, I, I wanted to, to show to myself that I could still do some of the things I really enjoyed as a single school head, whilst recognising that the scale of my leadership um, envelope, if you like, in terms of the number of schools I was now re responsible for in my new role, um, meant that I, I had to have more oversight and be more strategic in that. But I, I don't think I could have done that role had I not had 10 years of single school headship before I took it on. Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of um, leads on to my next question. And I was going to ask you that, um, is there a difference um, in the skills which are required in order to be a good head teacher um, or and a CEO, can can any head teacher become a CEO? Yeah, I think I think probably they can. Um, I mean, I think there are some really obvious transferable skills. So, I mean, I mentioned them earlier on. I think one, you know, one is you know, being a good communicator. Mm. Um, I think visible leadership uh, is really important. The way you build teams and you and you take teams on a journey with you and you explain their their role. I think I think absolutely there's some similarities between running one school and running 20 schools um, in terms of that particular context. But I think what changes is the kind of day-to-day -day operational foci, because obviously when you're, when you're in a school, then, you know, my role as a head teacher in a single school was, I was doing learning walks. I was watching lessons. I was out and about on the corridors at break time at lunch times on bus duty, you know, which would be very familiar territory to people who are, who are head teachers. And obviously you don't do that so much when you're, when you're running a, a group of schools. Yes. And so I suppose the, the expertise that I needed in the CEO role was much more around strategy, change management, um, thinking about uh, organizational structures, thinking about probably more, even more about the financial elements of, of leadership. I mean, I, I'd, I'd had the privilege in my two single headships to have two brilliant business managers who work very closely with me. But but it's more than that, I think, at CEO level. I had a director of finance who was clearly responsible for running the finances of the trust. But I also, because the envelope of spending was bigger, I needed to be really clear about what we were spending our money on and how we were making sure there was value for money for those schools that were getting support from the trust. So, so I think the, the role changed in terms of the scale and scope, but there were some absolutely some very common and very identifiable leadership themes that I would have done back in 1997 that I was doing uh, in that role as well. So talking about uh, MAT CEOs, um, do you think, or in your opinion, is it important for MAT CEOs to have teaching experience or, or not? <laughs> Yeah, so so if you'd asked me that question six or seven years ago, or whenever I started being an RSE, I think I'd have probably said absolutely yes, and I probably would have been quite dogmatic about it. But I think now um, I've seen some really talented leaders leading multi-academy trusts who don't have that classroom experience. Um, and and the, one, of the, one of the things that's helped me change my opinion, I suppose, is that is now that you understand, and we understand, I think, as a sector, that, that the scale and the challenge of leading a multi-academy trust, particularly one that's got a really broad geographical footprint, 
Um, it goes back a bit to the, the answer I gave you a moment ago about the skills that you need to run a complicated organization like that are very different, I think, to what you might need in a single school. And if you've got 20 schools and you've got 20 head teachers who are all obviously trained educationalists, there is a really big question for me about whether you need another educationist in charge of the organization or whether you need somebody who understands how to run that organization. But, and there, and there is a but, the, the, the CEO who doesn't have an education background cannot afford to allow a, a feeling to emerge that they don't understand the experiences of a classroom teacher. That's, that's the really big risk. Uh, and if I think of people, so I'll give you an example. Um, Rowena Hackwood, who is the CEO of Australia Academies Trust, is exactly an example of this. Her career is really rich in terms of the of both the jobs that she's done and the kind of career experience she's had. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, I don't think she's ever been a classroom teacher. But when you hear her talk to her colleagues in the trust or, or when she's leading an inset day, or as we've done a couple of times, walked around the schools together, her empathy and understanding of what the role of a classroom teacher is, is really significant. So I think you have to be able to make that adjustment. Mm -hmm. But I think my, my opinion has changed over the last few years. that I don't think it's a it's a hundred percent requisite that you have to be a teacher to be a CEO because of the nature of the organization. Now, if, if the trust we're talking about is a small trust of two or three small primary schools and the, the leader of that trust is in, in reality, an executive head rather than a CEO, yeah. then, then I think I probably feel differently about it. I think at that, at, at that scale, you probably do need to have that headship experience, but when the organization becomes bigger and more complex, then I, I think it tends to lead to a slight shift in leadership emphasis. So uh, talking about, uh, you know, uh, um, like you said, um, if it's a big trust and the CEO doesn't necessarily need to have experience of, of teaching in a classroom, but must know what it is like, how, how do they develop that? Well, there's no better way than immersing yourself in it. I mean, that, 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 that's the way you do it. I mean, I mean, you know, you, you, you spend time watching people teach, not because you want to give them feedback, but because you want to understand the role and you want to, and you want to see children learning. And if you're, quite frankly, if you're not excited about seeing children learn and you're not inquisitive about what's going on, then, then you really are in the wrong job. Um, but, I, you know, you, you'd have to assume, wouldn't you, the people from a non-educational background that are going into that role have got that real inquisitive nature about wanting to see it. So that's the first thing you, you have to immerse yourself in that. But I think also what you do is you, you appoint people around you and bring people into your team who do understand what great looks like and do understand how to develop um, both capability and capacity. And by working as the leader of that team and listening to how that team operates and looking at what they're trying to to deliver and what they're trying to create across the trust, you you pick up that strategy very quickly, I think. Um, so, so again, the examples, I mean, I've, I've given you one, but there are others as well where I've seen people re really adept after three or four years, particularly in the role, and talk the language of school improvement in, in a way that, that, that I would have done with my 40-odd years behind me. Okay, um, that that's really enlightening, and I, you know, I, um, it's it's like I said, it's enlightening to to hear about that. That um, uh, usually people say that you know, if you if you are a CEO, you must have classroom experience. But listening to you, I think what's more important is you understand what is classroom experience. Thank you for that. Um, now going on to something else. Now, obviously, it depends on the scheme of delegation and how the math is set up, etc. But generally speaking, do you think heads of school in maths have less autonomy than heads um, of a single academy trust or a maintained school? Yeah, they do. Um, they do have less autonomy. Um, but 
but let's let's be clear about it. The role of a head teacher in a trust is different, I think, to the role of a head teacher in a standalone academy or a maintained school. Um, but the, I think there are some significant benefits that ba- that counterbalance that. So, so you know, when I started out as a head teacher in 1997, I remember one 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 of the governors telling me, you know, almost in the same breath as I've been offered the job, "Congratulations, the buck stops with you now." Mm-hmm. Um, and, we, and we all laughed, and, I, and, I, and my heart sank because the realization that yes, it does, and, and there and there are consequences of me not understanding that. But in a multi academy trust model, there is that there is a shared responsibility and a shared accountability. And when it goes wrong, and and a head a head teacher fails, the responsibility for the failure is the, is the CEO and the board, as well as maybe the individual as well. And so I think there there, there is the there is the benefit of being part of a broader team, but also. Where I think some heads struggle in mats is is they 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 don't appreciate or or maybe the culture hasn't hasn't made it explicit that actually when you're when you're the head teacher of a of an academy in a multi academy trust of course the children that you see every day are your priority and those are the ones that you know the best mm-hmm. but you also have to care about all the other children in the trust as well mm-hmm. and and so that the collaborative leadership element of being a a, a head in a, in a trust. I think comes with a different set of expectations about how you carry out that role, and and this is this at its best, it's for the greater good because the the charitable object of of a multi academy trust, which is a charity after all, is to advance education for public benefit, um, and of course you need to do that in your school if you're the head of that school, but you can't you can't just be blinkered to the fact that maybe support and help is required elsewhere in the trust and you have the expertise or people in your team have the expertise to deliver that. So I think the role is fundamentally different. And I suppose it, it means that anybody who is taking up a headship, um, especially if they're moving from a maintained school into a, a school in an academy in a, in a mat, must understand the difference or how the role has changed. Um, because if they don't, then that's where problems may arise. Well, it, it is, and and if if I was to offer somebody like the one that you described here, a, a maintained head moving into a, a multi academy trust headship, one piece of advice: that moment that you get at the end of an interview, when the governors or the board of trustees say, "And do you have any questions for us?" Mm-hmm. I'd ask them that question: What's the difference between being the head of a standalone school and being a head in your mat? Yes. And frankly, if the trustees can't answer it, then I'd be very skeptical about saying yes if they offer it to you. That's that's a really good uh, good point, and I hope people who are listening in who are think you know make a note of this. Uh, thank you. Um, it's coming up to the news break, so we're going to sh- stop shortly, take um, listen to some ads um, from our sponsors, and uh, listen to some the latest educational news. And once that finishes, we'll be back um, and continue our really fascinating discussion about leadership, etc., with Sir David Carter. So don't go away; just listen to the news, and we'll be back shortly. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Upland. 
Plan is an online curriculum learning resource for A-Levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn. U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot UK. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us... You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. A healthy eating scheme called Food Dudes is being introduced in some primary schools in Jersey to reduce obesity in children. Children will watch videos about the importance of healthy eating and get a daily delivery of fruit and vegetables to eat each morning. Minister for Education, Deputy Scott Wickenden said, Unfortunately, we have an increasing number of children who are becoming what is considered overweight or obese during their development in primary school from reception to year six. Evidence-based programmes such as Food Dudes, which has a strong body of research demonstrating the difference it makes, is an excellent way to make teaching children about healthy eating more fun and exciting. The scheme has already been introduced to thousands of UK schools and evidence suggests it can help change children's attitude towards fruit and vegetables. In Scotland, the SQA has been accused by pupils and teachers of failing learners by releasing patronising revision guides to help tackle the disruption caused by COVID-19. At the end of February, the SQA announced that it was moving to Scenario 2 as a result of significant disruption and stated it would release revision support to help reduce stress and anxiety. Pupils criticised the support which was released, with one saying on social media, I never thought that SQA would assume we are so thick we wouldn't read the question before answering, but here we are. While another said, 
Feeling confident about my exams now I know a six marker question is worth six marks. SQA Chief Executive Fiona Robertson said, The measures are the fairest and best way we can help support all learners, while also maintaining the integrity, credibility and standard of the qualifications. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk timers. After being challenged to make a timer with shapes in PowerPoint, I thought I'd throw out a quick tip for the most common presentation software used in teaching. Microsoft PowerPoint and Google Slides. The easiest way to add a timer is embedding a YouTube timer video. In Google Slides, it's easy. Simply click on the insert menu and select video. You'll then be given the option to search YouTube. If you didn't know already, YouTube is full of timer videos. So type in the timer you want, for example, five minute timer, and you'll be given a list of videos to choose from. Select the one you want and it will embed. Finally, use the video format options to determine whether you want it to play on a click, start automatically or manually. Job done. You can also do this in PowerPoint, but you'll need to search YouTube first to find your video as you'll need the video's URL. If you're not a geek, that's the big long www address. Now you've got the address, select insert video and online video. Paste in the address and it will embed. Again, you can decide how it plays back in the playback menu. For both these methods, you need to be connected to the internet for them to work, but usually you will be. For this week's visual version, I'll retweet my example of the shape timer from last week and add a short tutorial demonstrating the methods I've just described. So don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. This is The Late Show live on Teachers Talk Radio and I am your host, Noreen Khalid. Uh, before the break, I was having a very fascinating discussion with Sir David Carter. Um, we were talking about uh, school leadership. Um, we'll now move on to um, school improvement, uh, David. Um, what is school improvement? Is it limited to schools which are judged to be requiring improvement? Um, not at all, no. Um, so one of the things I've spoken about many times is that if we assume there's 20, 21, 22,000 schools in England, mm-hmm. uh, my view is that every single one of them requires improvement, but not in the way that Ofsted would use that term, but in the true sense of no matter how secure your school is, there are always areas of improvement that are necessary. Uh, I think schools are, are never stable or static. I think they're either improving or they're declining, and sometimes that's imperceptible uh, how, how how slowly that's happening. But I I, I think if um, you know if we were to agree by whatever criteria we could come up with who the best 100 schools were in the country, and we had time to go and look at them all and really get inside them and see them, we'd find and they would tell us and show us what the areas were they were concerned about. So for me, school improvement is actually something which is systemic. It's about the, about the whole sector and irrespective of the school. Uh, irrespective of the Ofsted rating that your school currently has, I think school improvement is something that's relevant to every institution in the country. So I suppose that means, um, in other words, what we're saying is that um, there is no room to be complacent. Even if you are outstanding, that doesn't mean that you can't improve anymore. 
No, and and I think this is one of the one of the dangers I think where you have the Ofsted judgments wielding such power because uh, I've had experience in my career of leading two outstanding schools, um, and they were outstanding schools on the previous year's data, um, and I think they were probably outstanding schools during the inspection. Whether they were two days afterwards or a month later, I think is up for debate because I don't think outstanding practice is static in the way that I just said a, a moment ago. I think I think outstanding is a is a moment in time judgment. And so therefore, I think you as a head and as a school leader, you always have to be thinking about the areas that make your school better. And the other problem with outstanding as a, as a judgment is it gives you the impression that you're done, you're finished, yes. your cake is baked. And it really isn't. You know, I, I, I think there is a phase beyond that standing, which is about, about great schools. And I, I remember when Sir Michael Wilshaw was, uh, was, was, was leading Ofsted, he and I had a, a long debate about schools that were coming up for a second inspection, having been outstanding on the first one, and whether or not they should be able to be outstanding the second time round if they hadn't helped another school get uh, improve, mm-hmm. and, I, and I and I think we we both agreed that that was a that was uh, something worth considering, um, and I still think that's very true. True, I think the the best schools that I've seen uh, and I had the privilege to either work in or visit uh, were schools that were not only improving themselves; they were helping other schools to improve as well, and that that's such an important element, I think, an ingredient in how you build a, an education sector from the classroom up, not the DFE down. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, so uh, that leads us. Um, it, it's that system leadership we are talking about then. Sorry, could you say it again? I said, is that system system leadership we are talking about? Well, I think so. I, I, yes, but I mean, I think system leadership is it's become one of those phrases that we use and we bandy about. But I'm not entirely sure we know what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tell you, what I think it means, but I don't think I've got the I don't think I've got the monopoly on on, on this. I think system leadership is when, um, as a as a, an educational leader, whether I'm in a school or I'm in a trust or, or teaching a school alliance, whatever whatever setting I'm in. When I take a decision or, or put a strategy into place that has a benefit for children that I never get to see. So so when I think about my leadership in one school, most of the things I put in place to make improvements, I could see happening in front of my eyes. I could I could I could go wherever I wanted to in the school and I could see the impact of that change. But when you're leading change across multiple schools, the actual change agents of that idea are the heads and the leadership teams in the schools. And so therefore you're, you're one step removed from it, even though you may, you may have designed the strategy and it might well be your vision. Um, but, but fundamentally that system leadership for me is about how you, how you lead innovation and impact across more than one setting. And, and I think I've always felt that was the right definition. And I hang on to that because I think that's what it is. So um, your, your prompt about system leadership reminded me that we just need to be clear about what we mean by that phrase. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I once remember you, you using the analogy of uh, turning a tanker around while talking about improving a poorly performing school. Um, now, why is it that it takes time to turn around a school? Or in other words, uh, what are the dangers of going for quick fixes? So I think uh, if you're talking about a deeply chaotic school, a school that's quite badly broken, um, and mercifully we have very few of those now in the sector, but so 10 years ago we, we had more. And I suppose those were the schools that came into my trust when I started and certainly the schools I was worried about as regional and national schools commissioner. And I think the reality is that to really take a school out of that situation is somewhere between three to five years. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think and I think we just have to be honest about that because school improvement is complicated, it's messy and it's not linear and it's not a very, it's not a straight line and it's not a fixed point. So I think we have to be really, really clear that the time it takes to turn around a school is, is not an academic year and it's certainly not less than one. Um, and I, I, I do think there are some quick wins and some quick fixes that, that need to be put in place because you need to build the confidence of the community and, and, and your staff in particular and the children that things are getting better. But I think there is an inevitable time lag between the results catching up with the strategy. Um, and, and I think there's a tension for that uh, in, in, in school improvement these days because um, government ministers uh, and the DfE want it to happen quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you know, I, I know why that is because we're, you know, we, we generally speaking have five-year parliaments. We haven't had, we, you know, we haven't really had many of those either because things cha- have changed so rapidly recently. But if we were into five-year parliaments, then actually the first year for education secretary of state is getting to understand the brief. You've got two or three years to do something, and then you're preparing for the next election. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, schools don't fall into that 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 pattern. So what we have to be good at as school leaders is being really clear that we've got the right plan, really sticking to it, making sure that it's delivering on what we believed we needed to improve, and then looking at how the improvement catches up. So, so for me, school improvement doesn't happen quickly. Uh, I think it is something which is a product of great leadership, and, and I also think it's a product of really strong governance as well. And you're probably going to ask me about that later. <laughs> but, but governance in school improvement is vitally important. Uh, and it's not a passive role, it's an active role. And so I think that, that the time it takes to take a school from deeply special measures to being a good school, I think is that is around the three to four year mark. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a governing question for you, but not one which <laughs> you might have think I'd, I'd ask. Um, my question is that some governing bodies may panic when the school is judged to be RI. And you know they might uh, they might want the head to go for quick fixes and all of that. What would you say to those governing bodies who are in a state of panic? Well, I suppose it depends a bit upon whether the requiring improvement was a surprise or not, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. I've seen lots of examples of governing boards that that, that were t- completely taken aback by the fact the school was no longer good or outstanding. And and I, I don't have very much sympathy for that, to, to be honest, because if a governing body is that detached and doesn't understand how, how the school is performing, then you have to question the quality of their governance. But having said that, you know, you know, there's there's a big difference between a school that's moving from good to requiring improvement or one that's moving from special measures to requiring improvement. And and of course, you know, the, the good band in, in Ofsted terms is quite a big one. And so there's a there's a real sense for me about you know you could you could be a low end of a good or a wobbly good as I used to call it in the DFE, and and suddenly become a strong RI school, but the but the labelling of it is the bit that's difficult, um, and and the community really feels that I think, so I think the the, the key for the governance um, in terms of that particular school improvement journey is to be really focused, working closely with the leadership team on doing a few things really well. Because the temptation is, when things start to go wrong, is to throw the kitchen sink at everything. And and what schools that are requiring improvement often don't have is time and capacity. And so being really relentless about doing a few things well, particularly in that first year, I think is where I, where I would be, be, be suggesting governors spent their time. I'm absolutely with you when you say that if if an Ofsted judgment comes as a surprise to the governing bodies, I too have you know not much sympathy for them because that means they haven't been doing their 
the job properly. It, it shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, no. We got a question from Jeff Bedley. Um, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, yes, I'll, I'll just uh, read it out for the listeners. Does David believe it is more difficult to take a school from good to outstanding or to achieve outstanding twice in a row? So I've, ha I've had that experience, Jeff. Um, and I think probably the bigger challenge was the latter question about getting outstanding twice in a row. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll tell you why I think. So I think the good to outstanding journey is probably the, the, the one of the most exciting leadership journeys there is because because you, you're working in a school where the majority of things on a day to day basis are consistently okay. The the routines, the patterns, the policies, the the way you expect the school to work is working, and therefore you you're building your ambition on a much more secure footing because of that. Um, the school that special measures to good, that I've done that one as well, and that is a roller coaster. Um, and I think that's burnout territory if, if you keep doing it for too long. But I think the good to outstanding journey, I, I think is really interesting. The outstanding and maintaining outstanding, I think is really difficult because you're, it's not complacency, but you're dealing with a mindset that says we're outstanding. And because we've got a banner outside our gate that reminds us every time we drive into the school, we will always be outstanding. And it just isn't true. And so in addition to ensuring that your standards are being kept high and maintained, you're also, I think, having to challenge the orthodoxy of the organisation that says we're outstanding and and we always will be because actually things wobble, things change. I mean, you think about an academic year um, and two-year groups change. One new one joins, one has left. Think about the turnover of staff and maybe critical staff come and go. So actually, you almost have to reset at the beginning of every academic year. And what was true in June or July may no longer be true in September or October. And so I think that 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 challenge, I think, looking back, which is why you, know, you maybe reflect with your question, is I think maintaining outstanding, I think, is probably more challenging. And my final point would be, I, I, I think you sometimes need different leadership teams and the different composition of leadership teams on different parts of the journey and I can certainly remember working with leadership teams in Bristol who did the special measures to good journey brilliantly um, and were really expert at that who actually found the consolidation around good slightly frustrating uh, and hankered back the days when they were in an RI school so sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a good question about whether or not the same leadership team can do the entire journey and it's not a statement of them not being good enough that these are really good people but whether it, whether actually what you need is a different skill set around the table right so thank you thank you for that uh, David and I hope Jeff that answers your question uh, completely um, David what you've just said about being complacent and you know out it's outstanding on the day. It may not be an outstanding a month later. I suppose you're quite happy that the exception, um, the exemption has now been lifted uh, for these uh, for the outstanding schools to be inspected again. Um, I think I am. Yes, I think I am. Um, I I think it's a good thing to do that because I think fundamentally parents have a right to know how good their school is and and if a school hasn't been inspected for seven or eight years and is, and is sitting on an outstanding judgment I think that does need to be updated but I also think that given the backlog of inspections that we have at the moment I, I really feel for the head of a special measures or an RI school who knows their school is now good um, but but they're still waiting for that inspection to come Yes. And so, so I, I think that for me, which is the greater priority, I would have thought the greater priority was to ensure that a school that wasn't good 
is now good rather than whether an outstanding school is still outstanding. But I, I thought it was interesting and arguably unhelpful that uh, around the sector, people started talking about the number of schools that would lose their outstanding judgment before they were inspected. Um, and, and of course, what the, there are two things about that. One is, how do you know yes. the school might still be outstanding? But also, we have fewer outstandings than good schools. So does that mean there's also a bar on how many good schools can get to the outstanding judgment? Because if you think about it, you could end up, if, if the goal was to reduce the number of outstanding schools to make it the goal ticket, you could actually end up with more outstanding schools because more good schools make that journey. So, so I, I, yes, overall, I think it was good that that exemption was lifted. Um, but I think for me, it's still a question of strategic priority. If I, if I was leading Ofsted looking at the sector, I'd be far more worried about schools that were not yet good than I would about outstanding schools that might be good. Joseph texted in um, saying, so glad my school has ditched Ofsted. And I was wondering what that means. And then he goes on to say, we are in the ISA. Okay, well, you're, <laughs> you, you, you have other challenges, but uh, that's not one of them. Yeah. Um, um, a, a question from Tom Rogers. Does this all prove that it's time to get rid of the grades? Um, gosh, that's a good question. And and there's a there's a very big part of me would like to say yes, um, but I but I but I'm going to caveat it uh, around this. So so when I was working in the Department for Education, I think one of the things I realised was how little agency parents have in the education debate, um, and that, that whilst they make that critically important decision about which school their son or daughter goes to, in terms of educational policy, parents have very little voice in this. And therefore, we, we have to be careful, I think, that we don't make the, the, the educational experience even more complicated for parents. Now, I think there are flaws in having four offset judgments. Um, I, think I think the incentives and the disincentives and the, the challenges that schools that get themselves a special measure judgment face in, a, in terms of attracting great teachers and great leaders, I think that's a real issue. But I think also parents have a right to know how good their school is. I think my compromise would be something around good, not yet good enough or something like that. I mean, I've, the, word, the, the, the that language I've used mm -hmm. is clunky and it's not quite right. But, but, but maybe a two-tier judgment rather than four could, could, could be the answer to that because I think there is... We need to be very careful that as educationists, where we are, where our, our schools are funded by the taxpayer and parents are taxpayers, they have a right to know how their schools are performing. Um, and sometimes, no matter how careful inspectors write the report, some of the language in the report is hard for some parents to access, whereas the judgments are easier. So I think we've got to, we've got to see our position as public sector leaders as well as educationists in that, in that setting. Talk, talking about the language of the reports, um, do you think the language has um, of, of the reports now with the new framework, has that made it slightly easier for parents to access um, what, what Ofsted is saying? Or is it still just as obscure as it was under the old framework? No, I think it's better. No, I, think, I think credit where it's due. I do, I do think the reports that I've, that I've read are, are easier. But, but I'm also filtering it through the lens of someone who's been in education hmm. for 50 years. So I do, I, you know, I'm used to reading those complex documents mm. and so I do think it's better I, I still think there's a there's a bit of a challenge for parents so so there's a question around so what does that really mean when I've read that I understand the words but what does it really mean for my child yes. uh, and, and I and I still think there is a real need for um, a, a slightly more simplified version of of that whether it's a summary or whether it's just a change of tone of language it, it's definitely better 
but I'm but I'm thinking of 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 you know parents who are you know who have who have have challenges in their lives in terms of bringing up their children. They're disadvantaged. They're they're they're, they're struggling with poverty. They're struggling with housing. They're struggling with social care. They they need mental health support. Trying to work their way through an offset report is not a priority. Yet those are the very children we should be caring most about. True, true, very true. Uh, talking of parents now, um, we sometimes find that um, school is RI or or in fact you know inadequate but it's nevertheless quite popular with parents and the local community. And any change which the heads or the governing bodies makes to try to turn that school around um, is resisted by, by the community. Um, how can school leaders take along parents and the community of the school um, on this uh, improvement journey? It's very interesting how often you see a school that gets into difficulty but the loyalty of the parent and the community is still yeah. as strong as it's ever been. And, and sometimes that's because the parents um, went to that school themselves. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's because that school is very close to where they live and that proximity is really important. Um, I've been doing some work with the Youth Sports Trust recently and um, they've done some really interesting data collection around the motivation of parents for the choice of their school. And in primary, um, in primary and in secondary, uh, primary it was in second, in secondary it was top of the list. It was the values and whether my child is going to be happy and safe in the school was was the, was the really big, big important factor. And Ofsted inspection outcomes in primary were fourth, I think, and in secondary was fifth. Mm -hmm. So whilst we think, and, and rightly so, we're, we're exercised by this, aren't we, yeah. uh, as educationists, often parents use different criteria for, for that. But I think the... I think the the relationship between the leadership of, of of a school and its parental body is absolutely vital, and and it for me it's reflected in that very um, contentious issue and quite topical issue about parents and governor governorship rep representation, yeah. um, and and when you're leading change, the kind of change that we know is necessary in a school is not always clear to parents. So a, a teacher who is much loved by the community but who is a really poor teacher who leaves the school that's a difficult that's a difficult message for parents to understand so so i go back to that you know you asked me at the very beginning of the call this evening about when there were some of the the, the key criteria for leadership and i said communication was one of the, one of them and this is another example of that so whilst i don't think every decision has to be communicated to parents i think parents have to be taken on a journey and you ignore them at your peril because actually at the end of the day they've chosen your school and you have a, an obligation i think to explain to parents what you're trying to do to give your children not just a great education but to keep them happy and safe yeah i, I think some schools who do it really well are those ones who don't just publish it on the website and then have a letter from the head saying, yes, we, you know, uh, we accept the, what's, what's, what Ofsted has said and this is what we're going to do, but actually um, have an evening or a couple of evenings invite parents in um, to talk about the, the Ofsted report, to talk about what the plans are and, and just to get, get that conversation going. So, you know, like you said, so in order to, to communicate what, what's happened, uh, why it's happened and what challenges there are and how the school leaders, including governors, um, are going to face them. So there's a phrase that I've heard people use, which I really like. They talk about values being lived, not laminated. Yes. So so the, the glossy website, the brochures, the posters in reception are pretty meaningless 
if on the ground the day-to-day experience of adults and children isn't the same as what's been talked about on the posters. So I think that's a really important important element of that. And I think the the, the point about trying to really communicate well, I think is a really critical part of that journey so the parents understand also their role in it. So I think in an earlier question I talked about, you know, governors shouldn't be surprised about the outcome mm. of that. I, I'd like to think that the same is true of parents. Now, okay, parents may not understand the granularity of a requiring improvement judgment, but they, it shouldn't come as a total shock that there are things happening in the school that they weren't aware of. Mm. Um, and, and often what you sometimes see, one of the indicators for schools that find themselves in, in, a, in a special measures or serious weaknesses judgment is that the, 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 the voice of parents is not listened to anymore and complaints go unanswered. Um, and the and it used to be parent voice uh, with Ofsted is still quite an important element of that. That if parents feel grumpy about the school or feel dissatisfied, they know that they that's their most likely recourse of action. So so that communication can't suddenly start after the judgment. It should be part and parcel of how the culture of the relationship is developed. That's fine. Um, that's, um, I was just going to ask, and I think you've already answered this, that suppose the school has been judged RI, and um, what do you think? Obviously, it depends on what the report has found, uh, what the weaknesses are, but um, how, how does the head go about um, bringing in change or what the governors do as their first steps? So I, I don't want to be repetitive, but there's an element of me about here that the, the, the judgment is the moment in time. You probably knew your school was RI before the before the inspection came. So that improvement journey should already have started. But I, I think it's about doing these three things. I think it's about being really clear about the two or three things that you need to get right now. Um, I, I'm a big fan of 100-day plans, 100-day unit of time is basically September to February half term and then February half term to the summer holidays. And I think if you're working on three or four things within that time period uh, and you're forensic about what it is you're trying to improve, you, you then begin to see what I call the ripple effect. So on a very simple level, if behavior improves, so does the quality of teaching because mm-hmm. teachers are spending less time classroom managing. So that would be the first element of that, I think. And then the second element of it is the, the relationship between the activity that's happening on a day-to-day basic basis and the metrics that are coming out of that. So, you know, I, I don't get terribly impressed when people tell me the quality of teaching is 87% good because <laughs> how the hell do you know that? <laughs> you know, got, have you got eyes in every classroom? How do you know that? Yeah. So what are the metrics that are reliable that tell you the truth, mm. that, that both the, the hard truth and the, and the positive truth as improvement is coming is coming into play. And the third question, and this is the one for me, which is the governance question around school improvement, yeah. is about capacity. Do we have enough capacity to do this journey on our own or do we need some help? Um, and, and that strikes straight to the heart of the autonomy debate about do we just do, does the school just pull up the drawbridge and carry on as normal or does it become outward facing and seek help? Um, and, and I think, for me, the latter is the obvious way forward, because if a school's in difficulty, the egos of the adults who think they can solve the problem should be parked in favour of the needs of the children who've only got one chance of this. Yeah, that's very true. That reminds me of something I read on Twitter the other day, if I remember correctly, it was something like, um, it's, um, it's if, if the school is outstanding, is, is and does the, does, if the governance um, is outstanding as well, or can a school be outstanding without a governance being outstanding? 
Yes, of course it can. Yes, it can. Um, but 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 I, but eventually you run out of road, because what happens then is the school is the school and the leadership team is moving at a different level and a different pace to the governing body, and what the governing body will do in order to catch up is slow down, and so 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 I I think you can absolutely do that. Um, I think I think you can do it the other way around as well. I think you can have an outstanding governing body and a, and a, and a, and a, and a goodish leadership team but again there is a there is a collision course looming here about pace and, and and challenge and change um so so the sweet spot is when everybody's working at the same at the same pace in the same direction um and and you know you and i both know from our experience in governance that doesn't always happen um and, and that's a really important element and that's why the relationship between the chair of governors and the head teacher is pivotal and absolutely vital both on a personal level but also a professional level as well that's that's very true. And um, talking about governance, what is your view of uh, local governance in in maths? So this is a this is a biggie, isn't it? This uh, yeah. this this uh, this gets people steamed up. Um, yeah. It's absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital. Um, uh, and if I think about the work that I've done with trusts over the last four or five years since I left the DFE, it's probably w one of the areas where I see some of the biggest challenges because the trust is not clear enough about what the role and purpose is of the local governing body. The fact they call them local governing bodies is one of the problems because it creates the impression that they're like governing bodies in the maintained sector and they are not. They're subcommittees of the board. Yeah. And, and I think the scheme of delegation is everything here. And, and I, I work very closely with trust. And, and I know you've heard me say this in conferences. I think there are four things that a local academy uh, subcommittee aka governing body has to get right number one is what's the experience of the children who attend that school both in terms of are they happy safe and well educated secondly what's the experience of the adults who work in that school and are they getting the same experience as the adults elsewhere in the trust third question what's the experience of parents and carers who've chosen that school for their child and the fourth element is how does that how does the school represent the trust in the most positive light? How is it an ambassador for the trust that it's part of? Um, and I think where, where it gets confusing sometimes is some of the traditional governance responsibilities in the standalone school are carried on. And I think you have to be really clear about what, what areas the local governing group have responsibility for and what they don't have, because there are certainly things that happen at the school level that the trust simply can't see. It's yeah. too far away not because people don't do their job well, it's just the reality of the structure. So you need to delegate powers of responsibility uh, and authority and communication from the main board to the school board. And when you do that, and when they've done, when I've seen Trust do it really well, it becomes a really empowering role for people. And they don't get this frustrated about what they thought the job was and it no longer is, but it's, there's still work to be done in that area, I think. That's that's very true, and I agree with your four points actually. And um, talking about in you know, a local governance, I'm I also feel that um, you know, it it absolutely definitely has a has a role to play. And trusts which do away with it, um, you know, do so at their peril. Um, now that we are well, talking, I, I, sorry, yes, go sorry, on. No, I was going to say just 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 to agree with you. Um, I, I I do not see the logic of how you can do that. Um, I mean, I, I absolutely get how sometimes it's difficult to recruit people, um, and sometimes that that's a that's a challenge as well. But 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 that I, I, the, the the need for a democratic voice from the local community in education is absolutely vital, and and it's one of the areas in the academy program that needs looking at, I think. And 
And one of the things that at some point, a Secretary of State will be brave enough to do this, which is to actually clarify what is the role of a local authority in education, because it's really messy and confused at the moment. Um, and, and, and if the local authority role is to be the champion of children, which is one I think is a really powerful message, then, then they have to be involved in, in, in schools, whether they're maintained schools or academy schools. So I think, I think there's still work to be done in that. Would you, um, I know, uh, you know, in um, the Articles of Association, you can do away with, with, local, gov uh, with um, local authority governors if you wanted to. Would you take away that clause? Would you make it mandatory for every uh, uh, match to have a local authority governor at, at, the, lo at, at the school level? But the reality of that is that I don't think there's enough people to do that. That's that. That's the problem, you see. So, so in in principle, that sounds like a really good idea. But if it, but if you, I mean, if I think about Bristol, for example, uh, by the time I left Bristol in 2014, I think I'm right in saying that every secondary school in the city and around about half the primary schools were academies, either standalone or in or in mats. So, so if 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 you wanted to go with the government, the the DFE guidance, which is you should have two parents and a local authority representative, we did we did that. You've got an awful lot of people you've got to recruit. Yes. Um, so I'm 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 not. Whilst I think that sounds like a good ideal, whether whether it's the right whether it's practical or not, I'm I'm not sure about. But I think there I think there is something around the role of of local authority scrutiny. I think I think that's quite, that's probably where I I, I would put my energy into, into looking at it. And so, if I think about the occasions as the RSC, where I where I attended um, local authority scrutiny meetings to talk about academies in that particular part of my region then some of the questioning that I got about educational standards and academies in those meetings was as robust as I've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there are already existing mechanisms that we could use to make that better. Um, I, I'm just not entirely convinced that there are enough people, and I know they don't have to be local authority employees, but whether the local authority have got the capacity mm -hmm. to find that number of representatives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a, we'll continue our, our discussion on, uh, on academies. Um, just after the news we're going to take a short break to to listen to the latest education news and we'll be back and continue our, our chat with uh, sir david carter and we'll be talking a bit more about maths <laughs> This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen great improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. 
With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb Digital Portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. A healthy eating scheme called Food Dudes is being introduced in some primary schools in Jersey to reduce obesity in children. Children will watch videos about the importance of healthy eating and get a daily delivery of fruit and vegetables to eat each morning. Minister for Education, Deputy Scott Wickenden said, Unfortunately, we have an increasing number of children who are becoming what is considered overweight or obese during their development in primary school from reception to year six. Evidence-based programmes such as Food Dudes, which has a strong body of research demonstrating the difference it makes, is an excellent way to make teaching children about healthy eating more fun and exciting. The scheme has already been introduced to thousands of UK schools and evidence suggests it can help change children's attitude towards fruit and vegetables. In Scotland, the SQA has been accused by pupils and teachers of failing learners by releasing patronising revision guides to help tackle the disruption caused by COVID-19. At the end of February, the SQA announced that it was moving to Scenario 2 as a result of significant disruption and stated it would release revision support to help reduce stress and anxiety. Pupils criticised the support which was released with one saying on social media, I never thought that SQA would assume we are so thick we wouldn't read the question before answering, but here we are. While another said, feeling confident about my exams now I know a six marker question is worth six marks. SQA Chief Executive Fiona Robertson said, the measures are the fairest and best way we can help support all learners while also maintaining the integrity, credibility and standard of the qualifications. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk timers. After being challenged to make a timer with shapes in PowerPoint, I thought I'd throw out a quick tip for the most common presentation software used in teaching. Microsoft PowerPoint and Google Slides. The easiest way to add a timer is embedding a YouTube timer video. In Google Slides, it's easy. Simply click on the insert menu and select video. You'll then be given the option to search YouTube. If you didn't know already, YouTube is full of timer videos. So type in the timer you want, for example, five minute timer, and you'll be given a list of videos to choose from. Select the one you want and it will embed. Finally, use the video format options to determine whether you want it to play on a click, start automatically or manually. Job done. You can also do this in PowerPoint, but you'll need to search YouTube first to find your video as you'll need the video's URL. If you're not a geek, that's the big long www address. Now you've got the address, select insert video and online video. Paste in the address and it will embed. Again, you can decide how it plays back in the playback menu. For both these methods, you need to be connected to the internet for them to work, but usually you will be. For this week's visual version, I'll retweet my example of the shape timer from last week and add a short tutorial demonstrating the methods I've just described. So don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm Noreen Khalid, your host tonight, and uh, I've been chatting to Sir David Carter, and we'll continue our discussion on academies. Um, So we were talking about maths um, before we uh, took a break for the news. David, why do we need maths? Because, (laughs) Because I think one of the challenges that we have educationally is that we, for too many years, we have seen every individual school reinvent the wheel of education. And, and if we're going to be serious about how we move education forward, then we need to create a structure for formal collaboration to take place within it. And I know that people will be screaming at their phones right now saying, yeah, but we can do that already without being in the mat. Yes, yes and no is part of the answer to that. So, so the, the formal structure of the, of the multi-academy trust means that the governance arrangement is focused upon the needs of every child in that school, every adult who works in the schools, in the way that a, that a hard federation or a soft federation still has the individual entities um, w- within them standing out and not as part of the collective whole. Um, but having said all of that, there is still a real challenge, I think, for, for multi-academy trusts to perform in a way that says that is the answer. One of the reasons why people haven't chosen that path is because there are too many poor multi-academy trusts um, in the way that there used to be too many poor local authorities. So so this can't be anymore a, a kind of a toxic debate about maintain schools, good or bad, academies, good or better. Uh, it's got to be about what's the right structure for the system. And I, I, I absolutely believe passionately from my own experience of the last 20 years that, that by getting people working together in a collaborative sense where you take responsibility for children across multiple schools that having led a teaching school alliance having been in a hard federation they are not the same as a multi-academy trust so i think you can only win this argument on the quality of education uh anything else around the ideology of it i think will fail 
So, so your question is, why do we need them? I think there are multiple reasons why we need them, but I, I think fundamentally it's because that for me is the way in which we give children the best possible education. And a, a lot of the things you've asked me this evening and a lot of the answers I've given have been predicated on, on one simple fact, that children don't have any agency in terms of the choice of education they get. Um, and, and that's not unique to this country. That's, that's true the world over. Um, and so we need the adults to take decisions that are for the benefit of the young people that we educate. Because unlike sometimes happens in other countries, if you have a bad experience in year three or in year eight, you can't repeat the year again. You have to go forward to go on to the next, the next year group. And so we have to make sure that every, every experience, every encounter that a young person has in a classroom is as good as it could possibly be. And sharing practice, developing people together, building that collaborative gene and that collaborative whole, for me, is the way that we do that. I so agree with you. I think um, it's time we left this debate behind whether an academy is good or a maintained school is good. Um, forget about ideology and just focus on the fact that children have just one chance for education. And we need to make that chance as, as best as we can. Um, again, you know, uh, taking off... Um, talking about objections to uh, to academies uh, some people say that um, if you if a school becomes an academy it means that education has been privatized um, how would you respond to that uh, it's nonsense uh, it's nonsense because yeah. uh, it's not been privatized because the multi academy yeah. trust and the academy trust are charities are educational charities um, and and I've done a lot of work in the charity sector, um, and it is not a, it's not it it may run with the entity of a business in the sense that you you cannot as an academy run a deficit. You have to make financial decisions that means that your trust is solvent. Um, but they're not businesses; they're charities, um, and, and and that's why that charitable object that I mentioned before about advancing education for public benefit is so important to hang the hook of the strategy around. That's. So um, I think mo most of my questions now are just, um, you know, taking up objections of people and putting it to you because because of your experience uh, in the sector. Um, another objection is that the control of the academy is the ha is in the hands of a small group of people of in the board, unlike maintained schools which are run by elected councils. Now, is that a fair objection? Um. I don't think I don't think it is. No, I think in the early days of the academy program, um, there were undoubtedly in, uh, people who sponsored academy programs and uh, whether they were individuals or groups that did, did some of that. But actually, the vast majority of multi academy trusts across the country are led by people who led great schools, um, you know, myself included. So I don't have a business background um, and I went on to become National Schools Commissioner. So I think I think we have to be careful about, about the elements of it. And and in terms of the the, the, the notion that and a few individuals at board level control things, yes, there have undoubtedly been some examples where that's happened, but the, the vast majority of trusts, and there are 1,700 of them across the country, are run by people who are who are unpaid volunteers who give willingly of their time in the same way as people did 40 years ago in the maintained sector uh, when the governing body system was very different. So again, um, yes, there are always examples where, where some practices haven't been, haven't been good and, and need to have been challenged and rightly were, but actually the vast majority of people are in this for the right reason. And I think we should remember that. And another point, which, um, you know, which um, if school, when the school changes from a maintained school to an academy, it usually, not always, but usually the governors move along to the new, 
the, the new structure. And so it, it's really difficult for me to understand that why were they good when they were in maintained school and but suddenly you paint them as evil because they've turned into an academy. So, um, okay. Um, following on for that, from that, are maths more or less accountable than maintained schools or, or the same? They are, they, are, they are far more accountable than maintained schools um, because of the regulations that have been put in place um, in the funding agreements to Parliament. So, so whether it's the DFE through the Regional Schools Commissioner, whether it's Ofsted who inspect all the schools in the trust, and I know have an appetite to inspect multi-academy trusts, so Ofsted uh, are breathing down trust, trust neck. The ESFA looking at how you spend your money and your governance arrangements, um, and as well as, as well as that, the the if you're a leader in a multi-academy trust, the, the responsibility that your board of trustees has because the accountability is directly to Parliament. Um, and one of the reasons why the Regional School Commissioner um, network was built up was because it, it was becoming really apparent that when John Nash was the Minister for Academies back in 2014, he couldn't possibly oversee 5,000 academies from his office. And so creating eight regional structures meant that, that there was a much greater relationship between the academy sector in the regions going through to the DFE than one person having that oversight. So um, the accountability for finances, for educational outcomes, for inspection judgments, for map performance, league tables, the list goes on. The accountability in a trust is, is, is much, much more variable and much, more, much deeper, I think, than it is for the head of a maintained school. And having been both, I know that that's true. That's true. Lovely. Thank you. And that's why it's so good to have you on the on the show because you've got experience from from maintained schools, um, federations, and and maths. So you're speaking from from a you know a place of knowledge of uh, of the whole sector. Um, another thing when people talk about maths is uh, they bring up the point about the size of maths. In your opinion, does size matter? Um. It's a really, it's a, it's a complicated question, I suppose, in a way. But, but, I, but I'll have a go at it. So the first, the first thing is we have to stop answering the question about the size of mats by the size of the, the number of schools. Mm -hmm. it, it, you have to quantify this answer, I think, around the number of children that are educated in the trust, because if you think of, I don't know, let's go for, let's say, eight one-form entry primary schools in Cornwall might be fewer in number of children than three large secondary schools in London yeah. who are also in a trust. So you'd say that, that the eight school trust is bigger and more sustainable than the three school trust, but it's not true because the number the, the pupil numbers are different. So I think the first thing is we have to talk about the number of children educated in the trust, not the number of schools. And I, and I think the, the lower end of that scale, I think is, is a really difficult place to be at the moment. So there are still um, over 70%, I think it's 72% of multi-academy trusts are now five schools or less. And I think for, for some of those trusts, it's really difficult at the moment because they're not big enough. Um, and so we do need to think about how we grow some of those trusts or how we encourage and create merger opportunities for two small, three small trusts to come together. And at the other end of the spectrum, um, we have we have three trusts that have 60 schools or more. 
Um, and, and that also needs some really careful thinking about how you structure a, a, a trust of that scale. But where the real growth in the system is coming, I suppose, is where you see trust moving from 10 or 15 schools up towards 20. But I think when I started out as RSC, I was always trying to get help trust get to the point where they'd have between two and 3,000 children, which means that you've got a, a, enough of an income to be able to provide the support for the schools and generate the capacity for the schools that you promised to do when you signed the funding agreement. Because if you simply end up with a multi-academy trust with all of the complexities we talked about this evening, and actually the schools are getting none of the benefits of being part of that collaboration, yeah. then what was the point? So, yeah. so for me, that first base of getting to two, two and a half thousand children and then growing from there is a really important element in this. Lovely. Thank you so much. We are almost coming to the end of the show. Um, the last uh, a minute for your thoughts on something which you touched upon before, but um, then you said that I've given you enough notice and you'll come up with something else. What is What are you most proud of your accomplishment in, um, in education? So I, I gave you the answer before about yeah. the people I've worked with who become heads. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with that. I think the, the, other, the other element for me is that uh, I, I think what I tried to do, um, as I said in one of my earlier answers, was I tried to model what leadership could be like. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm not perfect by any stretch of imagination. I've made my fair share of mistakes um, and things I've got wrong, and I've always been very honest about that, and I think people have appreciated that. I've not tried to be somebody that, 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 that I'm not. Um, my own my own personal background was fairly humble in terms of being the first person to go to university and doing a music degree. Um, I went to a pretty tough, ropey, comprehensive school in Cardiff as a child, so I didn't have some of the advantages that other people of my generation had when they were younger. So, you know, I, I know what it feels like to be in a difficult school, uh, and I and I I think I just set out throughout my career to try to give kids the best like possible education that I could I could contribute to giving them and um, and I'm proud of, the, of that and when I see some of my former students talk to me or message me on Twitter these days about things they're doing I get an enormous sense of pride of that and the fact that they remembered that experience oh lovely that's that's so lovely to hear and David it's been absolute pleasure um and an honor to chat to you tonight it's been um, the the time has gone really quickly I had quite a few other questions to ask but we've sadly run out of time um, but thank you so much for giving up your Wednesday evening for us and joining us on uh, Teachers My pleasure, thank you for the invitation yeah, and uh, best of luck to everybody Thank you so much, thank you very much. Um, Everybody please hold on um, and because Toby Payne Cook and Ed Finch will be uh, hosting their show in a little while and they are getting as Toby puts it, they are getting science jiggy with it. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, till then, it's bye for me and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.